Welcome to Single Serving Cinema with Tim and Tay, a podcast that looks at one critical scene in a movie every other week. We explore how the scene is constructed, what the scene achieves, and what it can tell us about the movie as a whole. I'm Tim. And I'm Tay. What's going on, movie fans? We're finally here. We've reached the end of October, and we get to discuss one of horror's absolute classics. Today, I am really, really, really excited to discuss The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the 1974 original film by Toby Hooper. Tim, how excited are you? I'm so excited. Like this, I mean, you know, we always sort of, I always wonder about like how we're going to start these episodes. What are we going to say? And with these, you know, our picks, like I did Suspiria two weeks ago and you picked the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The most obvious question is, Tay, why did you pick this? And it's the most obvious answer. Like, why do you even have to ask that? This is arguably... Like, I think you can make a very strong case for this just being the scariest movie ever made, both in terms of when it hit the scene and in showing it to anyone who hasn't seen it yet. And also people who have seen it. Yeah, you know, I don't heap that kind of praise on many films, right? It's a tough it's a tough thing to set someone up expectations-wise for when you say this is the scariest movie ever made. Then they go in and they're like, wait, where was the scary parts? And... I always feel bad kind of setting people up like that. So uh, for any audience members who haven't seen this film, maybe I'll just get right to the synopsis and we can go from there. Mm -hmm. A group of five friends travel by van across rural Texas to visit a grandfather's gravesite. They stop at an old farmhouse where they face an unimaginable terror in the form of a deranged cannibalistic family and the chainsaw-wielding maniac Leatherface. This movie stars Marilyn Burns... Jim Saito and Gunnar Hansen as the notorious Leatherface and was released October 1st, 1974. Specifically, that release date was in Texas. Beautiful. Love that. Um, and as I was saying, I think many people do go on record saying this is the scariest film ever made. I'm not going like, to sit here and stand on the pedestal and say that, but I do think that it ranks in the top scariest films yeah. and i think the way that this movie generally affects people makes me think that that's a very valid argument because i don't know if any movie can, is as consistent with that kind of takeaway you know mm -hmm. yeah no i mean saying something is the scariest or the best or the most or your favorite is always you know kind of a losing battle yes right um saying something that definitively is never going to be 100% correct. I do think, though, if you just ran the numbers, like you showed this to 100 people, along with the other four movies that you would maybe argue are in the top five scariest, I, I'd put my money on this one. Right? I, I would, too, Of course, too, for all real. of this is subjective. Um, some people, the... For some people, the older effects and the older style doesn't age well and doesn't work for them, as we talked about in Suspiria. This sort of like film grain, um, the the zooms, the camera styles, they all play into something that I think I learned was scary when I was little. Um, probably, probably from like parents, my parents showing me some like Hitchcock movies because that's sort of like a tame scariness, not like Psycho or stuff like that, more of the thrillers. But yeah, yeah. I still think even like some of the the textural touch points of those have made me extra vulnerable to movies that look like this. And um, I, I, I just, I, I think it's, we, we said it a couple times already. I think there's a strong argument for it to be made to be one of the scariest movies ever. And I mean, and I love that, like, you pick this movie. I pick Suspiria, which is, you know, we talked about remakes and we talked about legacy and this more modern take on a lot of this stuff. 
but uh, it's great to end October and, and, and lead up to Halloween with like a fundamental classic, a, a revolutionary film in many ways, an inspiration to so many generations of filmmakers, and uh, just, just an outright banger. This movie works every time I see it. And that's always, I guess, almost surprised me because every time I go back, I'm thinking maybe this movie's aged. Maybe it's not as scary this time. Uh, I, I genuinely think that even people our age aren't seeing this as often as the previous generations would kind of come back to this movie and rewatch it and rewatch it. I think mm-hmm. we're finally at the point where the interest in this movie is kind of dwindling in, ter- in terms of like what's popular now. But I think you'd be hard pressed for in as any age group or generation right now to watch this movie, and not feel something visceral. I think that, yeah, this is, this movie ranks really high on a list of movies where it's like, I need, I know I need to see that in a theater at some point. Yeah. I really need to experience it like that. Cause there is a fun, there's always a difference. Any, any time like it, like you, at least in Canada, you can see that like Cineplex does these, re-release events and stuff like that they've got i mean speaking of toby they've got poltergeist this month i think it's the 40th anniversary that's fun um toby and or spielberg depending on on how how far you read into the background but i'm getting getting off my tangent there i would love to see this in a theater i would love to see this at like a midnight screening with a crowd i'd even i think a drive-through would be fantastic a drive-through would be awesome or drive-in sorry Sorry, yes (laughs) (laughs) drive-through Wow, can you tell we lost our only drive-in around recently? Yeah, it's it's too bad. I'm I'm looking at this weekend. I'm going up north, and there's a drive-in in that area, and they're the they have two screens. One of them has like Lyle the crocodile playing on it, so I don't think I'm going to go to that <laughs> screen. But the other one, the other one is doing a back-to-back of Halloween Ends and Smile, neither of which I'm super interested in seeing. But for the drive-in experience, I might go anyway. I think, based on what I heard, but Halloween sorry, isn't that- all that bad. Yeah, I I think I think they'll both do better, especially I mean we ri- I ripped into David Gordon Green a couple of weeks ago, so maybe I should give him a chance and yeah. uh, and drive the car out there and and and, and catch the end of his trilogy. Dri- but sorry, circling way back, we're talking about how great this movie is. Uh, this is our Craven month, otherwise, uh, and this is apparently one of Craven's top five movies. And Ridley Scott as well called it one of only a few really great movies. Wow, which I think I think is 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 quite a statement. And, it, you know, it apparently influenced Alien, which, I don't know, you can make the argument here or there. Um, I do think, I don't think Ridley Scott took the budget to heart, because um, this is not a Ridley Scott budget. Uh, Tay, tell us about how cheap this movie was and how much money it's made. So this movie was made for $125,000, which people did contest. I, I did see varying estimates there, but that's a, that's what we're going with $125,000 budget it it grossed 30 million box office within its initial theatrical run which Mm -hmm. is in a very very high gross point for a movie of this nature then since uh, I guess this is a as of 2019 estimate that box office number has grown to around 150 million dollars which which is just ludicrous like the uh, the multiplier on that is is ludicrous and also I mean uh, there's nine other films in this uh, in this series now. Right, we just got blessed with another one this year, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Netflix now owns the IP, is my understanding, and that's they made one that came out. I want to say January or February of this year, which was a. Fifty years I've been waiting for this night. 
just to see him again. Who? <gasps> Leatherface. Try anything you cancel, bro. it's an immediate sequel i watched about the first half hour it's an immediate sequel it wasn't to like what? oh the original uh to the original almost immediate sequel i'm not sure i haven't seen a ton of the other ones this is another one of those franchises where i do not feel uh worried about missing installments where they tell you more about leatherface or show you what he was like as a child like they do the hannibal rising for leatherface stuff like that this is one like the movie is not long it's so low impact i mean it's not like this great investment of time it's just like you just watch this one every year right like why wouldn't you especially if you can find someone in your friend group that hasn't seen it before and you get to live a little vicariously through them that that was my experience when i i think it was during COVID actually when i was living with two roommates neither of them had seen this i kind of put this towards the tail end of a horror movie marathon day mm-hmm. we all sat there they thought it was a great film but both of them immediately were like okay we need to watch like a horror comedy now to end the night and i was like okay so this is gonna this is supposed to be the end of the night but i guess uh we'll put on tucker and dale versus evil to kind of wash away the pain of this movie because yeah, it's kind of a digestive well yeah right? yeah so you don't you don't go to sleep with leatherface top of mind i think that this movie has that ability though there's very few movies where you just feel dirty and like you need to shower after you see them this is one of them and i think it's a tr- it's much a credit to the direction of the film but i think it's because of the position the characters find themselves in the grotesque nature of the entire world the film lives in you you really feel icky walking away from this one the most bizarre and brutal series of crimes in america this is the movie that is just as real just as close just as terrifying as being there no there is a realism to this both in terms of its production and its direction and its feel as an audience member and also the way it was marketed right like this movie was a phenomenon both in how it was set up as as if it were a true story which sounds like everyone sort of took to heart and at the same time in turn in terms of realism the first act of this movie makes me feel so gross and tired but not for any horror movie reasons but because you're you're in this hot van you know franklin keeps complaining about how hot it is all the actors are just like sweating onto the lens mm-hmm. uh not, i don't i don't like that's real sweat being too. in this movie even before the horror begins you know that well you mentioned that but the horror does kind of begin in that van right oh we have the hitchhiker who really Mm -hmm. creeps me out every single time and every time i'm like okay this scene isn't that long how is this guy still in the scene like it feels like he makes that scene extend so much longer than it actually goes and it's because you're just dreading what he's gonna do next and i say this as someone who's watched the movie at least 10 times i still am like uh like get out of the van get this guy out of here he's so creepy yeah i I do think the magic to this movie, like if I had to pick one thing, it's the editing. Uh, I don't, I don't know, I don't know how they did it. I don't know what the what the thought process was. I don't know if it was throwing spaghetti at the wall. I don't know if they spent, you know, weeks in the editing bays. But I just think, you know, what you're saying about the hitchhiker, what we're going to talk about in our scene, these big, big um, swaths of buildup 
of tension mm-hmm. without what I think are like your usual culprits of like, you know, kind of overwrought horror music and jump scares and things like that. It's purely like this genius understanding of how long to run these sequences where you're just sort of ratcheting up the tension, when to cut one shot, when to do the victim's perspective, when to go more on the on the on the attacker's side. That's true. I yeah. think it's truly magical. Um but I mean, otherwise, you mentioning the hitchhiker and how he sort of introduces this uncertainty, I think we can break into my sort of overarching, what what sticks out to me about this movie and what makes it really scary is just this, um, it's this journey from order into chaos and then an evolution of what you actually understand about the chaos, right? Because so it keeps evolving, movie, right? It's, it's yeah, like you, you think you've seen the horror and then it just gets mm. worse and then worse well the horror gains another dimension right so like i think you know you start this with a understandable premise obviously right friends are going to see their grandfather's grave so you've got the idea that, <laughs> honestly like, this is what we do. honestly that is still unbelievable to me because that's not i don't even register that as part of the plot i i it's not and like, regurgitated I, the plot when synopsis. i was sort of writing up my little thematic analysis it wasn't until i i looked at your um plot synopsis that i was like oh yeah they are that is the inciting incident is like (laughs) they heard that graves are being defiled and they have to go check their grandfather's grave and then while they're there they're like well let's go see the old house and stuff but all these sort of little things are sprinkled in like the grave um sort of establishing this is what we do with with dead people right like dead people and dead people are different than dead animals there is a structure and there's order right there's they show the armadillo roadkill which is different from their grandfather who has a burial plot and he was laid to rest in ceremony and things like that they establish all this order um you know that they're friends uh couples brother and sister all these things that make sense and then you introduce the hitchhiker and he immediately introduces chaos um it's not just that he's a threat or a danger. It's that he has a non-understandable perspective and the choices he make are, are something that you can't see coming. Yeah. Right. So there's he's truly like a madman. Yeah. There's this, there's this, they introduce chaos. And then like, I love even like um, Franklin asks later after they drop him off, after he, you know, he takes the photo, he burns the photo, he cuts himself, he cuts Franklin. Franklin's talking to Kirk, I think, or maybe Jerry. Uh, and he's, he's saying, like, which I think are two very important questions. It's number one. It's what's the difference between me and the hitchhiker? Is there something fundamentally different? Could I cut myself? How far am I from Leatherface? Or is there is there an unsurpassable gulf between us as as beings? And then did I do something to make him mad? Asks, is there logic to what these people are doing? Is there a process? Could it be explained? And I think the defiling of both those questions is what makes this movie so terrifying right is because no you didn't do anything to make him upset this is this was inevitable yeah no it's it's like you there you you had no agency in what happened yes you you met this agent of chaos and then i mean then you meet leatherface is true chaos it it is unprepared we'll talk more about that but the really genius thing, I think, is then when they take this chaos that is Leatherface and you realize that there is a form of order at play. Leatherface is a part of a family. He has a job in that family. There's a hierarchy of authority. The cook, Leatherface, the hitchhiker, they're all subservient to Grandpa. They add this dimension to chaos at the end where you're like, it's not just Leatherface just killing 
and like and like you know making his bone couches and stuff like that yeah he is he has a community and a culture and a society which i think is even more horrifying than just like this is a not this is a void this is something you will never understand it's like unfortunately if you peel back a layer you'll start to see what there is there and i think i think that's the truly genius turn in this movie script yeah it's the fact that well we're gonna get to his introduction at during our scene Mm -hmm. but it's the fact that we still just we think that we've seen it all or we think that we know what the horror is and then it continues to evolve and transform and grow into different entities as the movie continues and propel forward into further and further horror and what keeps the audience more and more scared as the movie goes because i think that the scene we're going to discuss is near the beginning is maybe one of the scariest scenes in cinema history to me but Mm -hmm. that that would typically seem like almost like one of those situations that you don't want to expend all of your audience's energy and fear right off the bat but yet this movie continues to use that and harness that and keep taking you down this journey of further and further scares it's really a credit to the filmmaking because i don't think movies work like this very often it's not an optimal formula for keeping people scared yeah and i do think it it is fair to say as it wasn't for suspiria as we talked about that this is deceptively simple oh yeah i think oh yeah i think you know anyone going into this isn't walking out going like oh it's a journey from order to chaos and (laughs) and how how chaos is sanctioned and it has its own communities and you know toby hooper was part of the the uh new hollywood movement and this is clearly a this is clearly a commentary on like hidden atrocities within systems of power within america it's just a horrifying movie with with a with a a chaotic uh boogeyman who just like screams and squeals while he chases you with a chainsaw. You know what? Maybe this is a great time to just give you the tagline of the film because I think this sums <laughs> yeah. up your argument pretty well. Yeah. As Tim already mentioned, the advertising campaign deserves a lot of credit for what this movie turned into as a phenomena. Even if one of them survives, what will be left? The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. After you stop screaming, you'll start talking about it. Um, I think being promoted to people of the community that the movie takes place in is a huge key to this success too. Uh, being able to release your movie directly out in a Texas like this, of course you're going to get people at the movie theater. Imagine if like your your town name had that title of a movie named after mm. it. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Even your state, your city, whatever. <laughs> um, but the tagline for this movie then became, who will survive and what will be left of them? which I think goes down as one of our greatest taglines that we've covered on the show, mm-hmm. uh, m- not only because of what it infers, but because of how the audience latched onto that and everybody wanted to see this movie because of the poster, yeah. which is, an like, it's rare to actually see the original movie poster still being used for a film this old. Mm-hmm. It's still being used because that poster is legendary. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's horrifying. I mean, that's a great tagline because yeah, it does hint at that idea where um, death is not the only uh, thing at stake here. It's also like, are you going to be eaten? Are you going to be turned into art? Uh, like, are you going to decorate uh, Leatherface and the what? What's the family they had? What's the family's um, like surname? Is it Sloan? It's, it's it starts sure. with an S, right? Because um, it got changed. Um, 
apparent i i was listening to uh the the big picture podcast where they were sort of they're talking about the remake that came or the 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 new installment that came out earlier 2020 Hmm. um and they mentioned that um the family the family has a the sawyers not the sloans um but they were renamed to the hewitts in the 2003 reboot and 2006 prequel i wonder why uh, we're not sure about but anyway, that the uh, you know the Sawyers, uh, they're gonna find another use for you. What will be left of you? You you won't you won't be laid to rest. Like you're you're because you're human, you are not treated with more respect than animals. You are the same to them, right? Yeah, which is that whole slaughterhouse equivalency that that vibe mm-hmm. you get as soon as this kind of space is entered. Um, I I think that the tagline also might infer psychological ramifications as well, right? It's saying what will be left of anyone who could survive something like this. And obviously our protagonist, Sally, spoiler alert, does survive at the end. But Mm -hmm. the final images of her only imply one thing, that she is psychologically damaged for the rest of her life. Uh, I think it's an iconic final shot for the record, too. Yeah, she I mean she's screaming and she's laughing. It's a it's a fantastic shot and I think it's also special that you know this movie ends your final girl as we've talked about Sally survives and Leatherface survives. Right? Like uh, like an iconic ending for a movie because again like you can't he's chaos. What 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 is he doing? Like is Leatherface dancing? Is he celebrating? Is he is he angry? Is that a tantrum? I always took it as or a is tantrum. That like a t- you know, um, it, it, it's so many things at once and it's such a bold way to end that movie with 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 Gunner just just like doing a weird like chainsaw ballet, you know, I will. Uh, there's a good production story from that, though. Uh, the actress who plays Sally, Marilyn Burns, had just gone through a grueling shoot making this film. They shot the finale and she finally was able to kind of like cleanse herself and then she gets a call from toby hooper saying we need to reshoot the whole ending so her maniacal laughter she says was genuine she was like genuinely that fried from the pushed over the brink and she like her laugh that was like apparently almost naturally coming out of her by that point in the shoot and I love it. It works. Yeah, it really I mean, works. I, I feel bad for the cast and crew. They, By all accounts, it sounds like it was insanely hot, but also yeah. interior Texas, which is humid. It's not a dry heat. Oh, I didn't gather that um, info. And that's, I, I read it, so I, I, I found something akin to a uh, an oral history, like I've done for the other movies, uh, which will be linked in the show notes. But yeah, they said it wasn't a dry heat either, because I've been in parts of Texas and it's hot, but it's also bone dry, which I think is a quite a lovely heat if you're okay with heat in general. Yes, um, so I've heard. But they said they said it's pretty swampy, and then you know the budget constraints, things like that. They're shooting really long days because they had to do it. It was this very independent style, you know. Well, you heard about the twenty-seven hour shoot day as well. Yeah, that's like just utterly illegal right? well it is illegal like you're not (laughs) there's this movie wasn't unionized okay (laughs) yeah (laughs) so but they did only apparently they only had jim saito who plays the cook 
they only had him for a week under contract and the final day of his contract they just needed to make him work a 27 hour day which was the iconic dinner scene which many people might be surprised is what we're not covering today and i think it goes down as one of the most iconic and scariest scenes in cinema history but it's not what we're discussing today even though i think it's amazing and the production stories are pretty rampant about that how like everything that that went into that when you when you picked this movie i was like oh okay so we're doing like the scene where the grandpa sucks on her sucks (laughs) on her finger after it's been cut and starts doing the little dance because that was i mean this movie the first time i saw it which was like in in early adulthood like almost certainly university where i started getting into horror movies and it was terrifying i watched it alone you know all the lights off you know um but the the thing that like really got me was when the grandpa starts like doing his little dance yeah well well he's suckling on her blood and i was just like it like it it, it blew my mind because i'm like everything else like you've seen versions of it before not done this well i'd say and as we'll talk about in the scene not done with this understanding of what actually makes something scary and how you how you deal with your boogeyman but i like you know again give me give me a million years to write out versions of this script i never would have come across the idea of like well then they like let grandpa have a taste and he starts doing a little dance and like tapping his feet and stuff it's it's um like uniquely unsettling yeah it i think part of that actually stems from the fact that they had a 19 year old kid playing the grandpa in like significant prosthetics which is also why they needed to shoot such a long day because they couldn't get him out of that Mm -hmm. makeup yeah. And uh, I think that his youthfulness might have contributed to the uh, kind of uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The odd nature of, of the of the grandpa, like how he moves and stuff like that. Yeah, like it just doesn't make sense. Right. It's a youthful mm-hmm. movement coming out of an old body. And unlike in the Irishman, it actually looks. It's, yeah, it's the inverse. It's like a, the a real body the inverse problem where they they have great technology to de-age Pacino and De Niro and they still walk like old men. Yeah. And this is an old man right. dancing like a nineteen-year-old. Right? Like once, once, once your back starts starts seizing up and starts and starts uh, getting a little bit more crooked, there's no going back. Yeah, some of those some scenes from The Irishman I remember were pretty tough to like forget in terms of like, oh, that doesn't look right, and it's the uncanny valley kind of thing, right? Yeah. Versus this, I think that it's doing something just completely different by showing you something that doesn't make any sense like logistically in your head you you don't understand what's actually happening when the grandpa starts tapping his toe there (laughs) but again as as i was saying like there's an order to their chaos because you can tell from the sawyer's perspective they're like this is what this is you know this is saturday dinner yes this is what we do yeah you know uh which is uh extra horrifying yeah Um, i'm glad we got to touch on that a little bit there uh, I mean, otherwise, like the uh, another quote I wanted to bring up was Rob Zombie, who did he did one of the one of the future installments of this or two. Um, he had he had a great quote that that really summarizes like one of the key ideas of I think why this movie is effective is that you, usually movies just look like movies. This looked like you were there. That sounds right? like he's talking a lot about his own movies too. There. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, there there is a verite style to this, right? And I mean, Toby had talked about like his his big influences and what he loved were Fellini and Antonioni and Truffaut, who not necessarily in camera style, but there is some overlap. But I think just generally some. these are guys who argued 
against what was accepted like this is what you can and can't do in terms of a story in terms of how you make a story cinematic in terms of how you end something or how it has to go like i the one that really stood out to me was um uh uh blow which is the antonioni and which one's the de palma blow, blow up is antonioni up. i get it mixed up every time blow up breaks a lot of rules very intentionally uh, to, I think, unsettle you and obfuscate your access to information as a viewer. And I can see that kind of stuff at play in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Not, 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 <laughs> never in like one to one parallels and things like that, but you can definitely see that Toby Hooper was like, we do not have to play by any of the rules established by, by previous horror movies. Which works right. to this movie's benefit in so many ways. Like, on so many levels, this movie relies upon, un- like, removing conventional thinking, right? In terms of how it depicts its characters, in terms of how it gives you plot points, and how it takes its audience through the film. It's kind of, like, dragging you through it rather than setting you up to, like, know what's going to happen. It's- yeah, because I, I wonder, like, and we're talking about where this stands. We've done this a lot this month in, in where these movies stand in relation to the horror genre as it goes. Before this, like, what was the biggest horror movie? Like, are we just coming out of, like, essentially the Vincent Price era? Well, Psycho and... Of, like, almost more, like, stage horror? Psycho and, like, uh, I think Peeping Tom and... Right, so early De Palma, Hitchcock sort of fundamentally changing the way everything works. But in, in a completely, like, there is no, I don't think there's much psycho in in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I think the idea of the location ways, you know? is almost treated similarly. This is just the evolution mm-hmm. and the next step of what Psycho kind of did, which was, okay, this is a recognizable American location, and we're going to put an everyday person in the scenario of them being tortured and terrorized in a location that's really familiar. I think that extends into Texas Chainsaw. However, as far as what I'm thinking that came out in the decade between Psycho and this, I really can't think of much that would I guess like I guess like uh, sort of new Hollywood in terms of um, like the way that they treat violence was changing. Well, so okay. like Straw Dogs is 71. And uh, even Easy uh, Rider. Look... 69. Easy Rider, Don't Look Now was in 73. Okay, so that that would be a that's a big one. Wicker Man in 73 as also well. Also a big so one. So like British British sort of horror between it and Straw Dogs. Um but I mean otherwise if you're looking up like top 70s, okay, so The Exorcist was the year before. Right, this. I'd say that's probably the critical one. I think that that's a really different, so different film though. Like almost entirely yeah. different in terms of what you're trying to do cuz that movie had a religious bent to it that they mm. actually didn't they didn't ignore that aspect of it they actually rode that religious angle throughout the well, exorcist it made it made it one of the most successful horror movies ever is the fact that like the catholic church was like this is accurate exorcism and also you shouldn't see this yes and i think that just yeah. but you know what maybe it rode similarly uh, the advertising and the idea of what mm-hmm. it means to scare the hell out of your audiences it kind of took yeah. that idea and ran with it in terms of its marketing because i do see overlapping in the marketing of those two films i think uh, if you have, if you have free time, just go look up the original trailer of The Exorcist that was banned. It's so good. It's yeah, very unsettling, um, and I think it it is very reminiscent of the opening scene of this movie, actually. Mm-hmm. And I and otherwise, I would just say yeah, like um, probably Straw Dogs and Wicker Man 
feel the most of this time as well. Yeah. Um, even though, like, you know, they kind of came out the year before, you know, we they're not living in the world we are now where movies, you can just find them and stream them. There's a very good chance Hooper wasn't able to see those movies before he started making this one. Well, yeah, they were shooting started, like, this the script, 72-ish, like that, you know? right? 72 or 73, I think they were shooting. Right. I don't know if they shot it two years before it released or what, but yeah. It point good point Tim like you couldn't just stream everything so you weren't necessarily aware of everything and that's why Hooper quotes his biggest inspirations as some of like uh, either classical Hollywood cinema or international films like greatest auteurs mm-hmm. so I think we're at the point where we can get into our scene did you have any more to touch on in terms of marketing or history of this movie no 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 I'm ready I'm ready to get into the scene I want to talk about Leatherface yes okay so, to address the question from the top of the episode here, the reason I picked this movie, Tim, is because I think that this scene specifically is the scariest scene that I've ever seen in my life. And mm-hmm. I want to talk to you about why. Because it's not obvious to me even why it's so scary. And when I think about the shots specifically that really bother me, it's been like a lifelong journey to figure out what hooper is doing to my brain that makes this movie so significant and why the scene stands out so much to me so Mm. let's see what we can figure out uh the scene takes place from 3145 to 4020 so it's a eight and a half minute scene um looking to refuel their van with gas pam and kirk wander across the grounds of an old farmhouse upon closer inspection the two get more than they bargain for as they come face to face with leatherface i had a joke face to face to face with leatherface uh and the scene stars terry mcginn william vale and Gunnar hansen as leatherface uh you know i mean as, as i said like my first thought would have been the dinner scene but um going back and watching this you're like oh there's a there's a subtle art at play i think in in how these nine minutes ratchet up and then have a have a peak and then start the process over again um you go from not knowing to dreading uh sort of like your your two pillars of i'd say like horror function is what's going to happen next and oh no i know what's going to happen to this person next i would agree that this is artfully done i think that this being one of Hooper's first ever films he did make like a feature for television before this or something but you can see a a real film mind at work here you can see some of the inspirations you can see some of the unorthodox thinking that he's inputting into this film and uh I think it similar to how we discussed the opening scene with the hitchhiker you just don't know what's going to happen necessarily or you you have no way of predicting what's going to happen in the next 30 seconds kind of thing and that really ratchets up tension quick in this scene. I think the scene is also awesome because I don't think it gets less scary the more you watch. I think it gets more scary because you do know what's going to happen. And you mm-hmm. and I dread some scenes from this. It's truly that impactful on my brain. Um, I did want to kind of go at this in a linear way and talk about this step-by-step mm-hmm. step here. So... Well, I think so. Like, what I'd actually want to want to start with um, is sort of like the inciting reason for the scene is that Kirk and Pam hear an engine, and Kirk's like, "Oh, an engine means fuel. We need fuel." And they start searching for it, 
and the sound of the generator is present throughout like the entire sequence. Yeah. You can hear yeah. it when they're inside the house. It's it's the the sound design is critical to this movie. It obviously, you know, if you have chainsaw in your title, you better have good sound design because like the chainsaw becomes like the thing that pursues Sally later. Um but I just want to start that sort of insane thing is they're like this they come out here because of the noise. I think you know, you as a viewer, you're like, I know this is called the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and we can hear this engine far off. And then they're kind of like, no, no, no it's a generator. It's not a, not a chainsaw. Yeah, don't yeah. worry. But you can hear it the whole time, and I think it really sets this just a little bit of an unsettling edge to the entire thing. And I think it's extremely well done. As they get closer and farther away from the generator and they go inside, the sound changes quality in a way that I wouldn't credit every 1970s movie as pulling off, especially not one with this budget. Right. That's attention to detail, and that's kind of refining your soundscape to match your visuals in a way that wasn't always a given in the 70s, uh, especially when you're talking about almost entirely ADR sound. No, and as, as we've talked about before, like sound is a critical tool for horror because it's arguably the most experiential because you can't with a movie you unfortunately people can't touch things they can't feel things and i think your next most textural visceral and palpable sense is sound and soundscape so the way that air sounds in a house as opposed to outside the way that the generator sounds through walls as opposed to the other side of a bush as it's reverberating the air all these things are little hints telling your brain that this is real and that you're there even though you know you're looking at a screen to your brain if they're well done your brain's not thinking i'm listening to these through speakers saying i'm listening to this stuff because i'm there yeah and film can imitate our perspectives or like the way our eyes see things but it's never perfect in the sense that film can imitate how we actually hear things uh whether that's mm. through textures or through walls or whatever that is a really great point because it does really set up this landscape for mm pure dread as they get closer to the house we get little bits of iconography like the tin cans hanging in the tree and the, the compass thing with the nail through it uh apparently that day on set they just felt they needed to spice it up a bit more so they called up robert burns who's their art director probably going to mention him a lot today um mm. he came out like on a whim and he, he has a funny way of talking he was like yeah i was in the middle of doing something and they called me so i had to show up <laughs> it's like yeah, that's okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. You say yeah. so. What were you in the middle of doing, Robert? Um, yeah, that's oddly vague. Yeah. And yeah, so he's like, I came out and I just hung some cans on the tree and it really worked for kind of just setting up what's about to come. Um, then they approach and there's like a bit of like a covered car park area where there's all these abandoned vehicles. And apparently these were all cars of crew members, which is funny. Yeah, but, like, what it hints at is, like, something else, right? Oh, There's yeah. something to be hidden. There's some excess. And I, I I, wanted to... I ran out of time before we started the recording, but you do this in Alluvian, right? Don't you... Or did we just talk about the fact that, like, you, you had plans to have, like, shots of, like, piles of, like, victims' belts and shoes and yeah. stuff? It was, it was, was that... something I wanted to imply by doing that. Mm -hmm. And in the commentary, Hooper kind of admitted to doing the same... Like, that's, that is what the cars set up is for it's meant to mm -hmm. well i think it's multifaceted because it could come off as innocent if you weren't watching a movie called the texas chainsaw massacre mm -hmm. um but i think knowing what you are watching makes this pretty sinister in appearance yeah 
I mean, yeah, like my my uncle has like six old jeeps uh, behind his car. That's what I was gonna say. North. How many people in Texas he's, would have? He's not like a this? he's not a mass murderer, but yeah, when you come across it in a horror movie and they're covered, you know, they got like that sort of camouflage on. Yeah. You're like, well, this isn't. Where do these people go? And you're about to find out. Is it just <laughs> someone who's collecting rusty old cars and taking the parts out? You know, you you see mm. this kind of thing on in rural areas on farmland properties. This definitely spells out something more sinister. Even though our characters are like pretty oblivious, maybe like obviously they haven't seen enough scary movies to know because they didn't exist at this point, so they didn't know. Well, and I also like you know they they establish that these people are fairly, you know, like they're kind of they're not hippies, but they're definitely like socially open and they're they're empathetic, right? Like they pick up the hitchhiker, they're like they're like oh pick him up, like it's so hot he's probably dying. Right, and I do think there's like this. You start from this point of innocence. Hundred like, percent. No, here's they never would have gone to the Toby house. showing you like this is this is the real America. This is where we're headed in the seventies. That's a good point there. Right, yeah. like so, you know, like I, you know, I read things where they're like it was based on the Vietnam War, and I'm like, I don't know about that. It may just be based on like um, disillusionment with American society in general. The war is one factor of right, just like you know. Uh, uh, you know, Nixon getting kicked out of office and people starting to lose their faith in the presidency. All those things are parts of what I think is getting could be reflected here. I'm sure if you ran a film course, you'd eventually get a pretty hacky essay that's like uh, uh, Leatherface is Nixon or something like that. Right. I, I think all of what you're saying is indirectly tied to the attitude the movie like goes on to take. But I don't think it's tied specifically to any historical moment i think it's simply i don't even think it's metaphorical i think it's you don't think it has anything to do with the german (laughs) (laughs) autumn i think like a like an intelligent film of its time it comments on the zeitgeist by showing characters mentalities and how they handle issues and tackle problems and i think you made a great point like these kids come at this very innocently this is the way that good old-fashioned america works now nowadays you don't just walk up to someone's house and open their front door and be like hello is anybody home hello i mean the cook you get that you know from cabin in the woods the harbinger thing the cook runs this gas station and he's like well don't don't go out there like people people might not want you on their property and they won't be afraid to show it. And you're like, that feels very Texan, but maybe at the time it wasn't like, you know, Texas, like, you know, it wasn't printed on belt buckles like it is now. Sorry to our fans in, in Austin and the cool parts of Texas. Yeah. All you cool Texans out there, we're not ripping on Texas. We think that this is a freaking cool zeitgeist movie (laughs) about, about your state. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so getting just getting back to the scene here, um, yeah. I like that we actually get a chance to see the generator. Uh, you get to see mm-hmm. it from their perspective, and they, they make the insinuation, okay, this is where the sound is coming from, okay. Apparently, in the commentary, the I think Robert Burns, actually, the art director, is on the commentary, and he said that he set that up because they wanted to create a sense of plausibility of the sound, and yet audiences seem to always forget that they show the generator in the movie. So he's like, so it was kind of pointless. Oh. Um, there's that big zoom i, I know too, and it's like right? bright like, orange like uh, yeah the implication was that before you know the family that this is a very self-sustained environment that they don't run, rely on power from any outside source this is all in-house and see i say all that but like 
I haven't seen this movie maybe in two years. And when I was watching it this time and you hear the sound, I'm like, that's a chainsaw. <laughs> and I was like, no, it's a generator. Like, you've seen this before. Come on, man. I mean, yeah. I get, Robert Burns had a lot of bones to pick with a lot of people, but this was one of them. <laughs> um, so another thing I learned in the commentary is we get a great shot of the swing set before they approach the house. And mm-hmm. Burns once again commented on this, and he said that – this is Leatherface's swing set, which I never would have thought, to be honest. That thought never crossed no, my mind. Neither. But apparently it's like built extra sturdy. They used, um, similar to what we're going to talk about with the th- with the way that the meat hooks are hung up later in the scene, mm-hmm. he, they used railroad track wood because they figured that this is what lumber Leatherface would actually have access to. He would use the strongest lumber he could find, which was the railroad track pol- like beams and poles. So that's what the swing set's made out of. That's what the meat hooks are hung on. All of the art direction and prop design and production design came from him kind of imagining what Leatherface would actually have to use. He even goes as far as ripping Tom Savini, who's one of the greatest effects artists of all time, who designed the Leatherface mask in the sequel. He ripped that mask apart. He said, like, that looks like a Tom Savini mask. That doesn't look like what Leatherface would create. And I think he's got a great point there. I think that's what adds so much to the scariness of this film. But yeah, so the swing set, apparently for Leatherface, I thought that was pretty funny. Um, I like I like the swing set and this whole like front yard yeah. thing because it's very well established, right? It is. Like, there's a lot of nice, smooth shots in this movie for its budget. Like they clearly, they had track, they had a dolly. Yeah. Did um, you see that note on that dolly shot though? Uh, actually yeah they yeah. like he really insisted on it which he was right too it's fantastic yeah. but they use like the camera moves in and goes behind the swing set as they sort of establish the front porch in the front yard and i like that they take the time to do that because there's a lot of back and forth on there that we'll talk through with like the tooth pam puts her other layer of clothing on the swing yeah. and then she goes and grabs it there's a lot of time sort of spent out here in this sequence. i think that works so well for kind of almost lulling you into that sense of a state of unease because of the way that they've approached the house and you've seen the cans and the generator and the it's just all a little uneasy but still like you know there are these you know there's things you understand like they can sit on the porch and sort of wait right. and knock on the door right. and you're in broad daylight which again like anytime you can pull off like the malaise of horror in the sun uh is is always impressive it right? truly is it's um it's a dream to like actually write a sunlit horror movie. I think for many horror writers and uh, I'm one of them, I'd love to be able to come up with a concept that works so well in the daylight. Mm-hmm. I think it inherently adds something very scary to your script. If you can still make something terrifying in daylight. Um, usually you have to rely on darkness to obscure and make things more horrifying. Yeah. Um, so this, the tooth also, there's a story behind the tooth um robert burns had a contact in los angeles who worked at a dental school um apparently on request he sent him a box of human teeth uh to use for this shoot and so that because that's that's cool yep that's definitely something you should be able to do it's definitely something you'd be allowed to do today and (laughs) um the way that kirk picks it up off the porch and just puts it in pam's hand it's very gross it's like oh that that's a real human tooth and they even as like from a real perspective and from the characters within the film's perspective, I'm like that's pretty gross. Okay. Don't touch that. Yeah, I mean, like, let's just be let's just lay something out here, Taylor. Like, neither of us have kids, but like when I have kids and they start losing teeth and like, you know, they give them to me or the tooth fairy collects them, 
I'm just throwing them out. Oh, you don't keep right? your teeth? Or like composting them? I'm not keeping no. them. That's weird. I kept one of, I'm not I kept one of my like teeth, I think, somewhere. This is my kid's head. I don't know about <laughs> that. I don't know. It's part of your head. That go, that goes in the compost or something. Yeah, I, I, they'd probably compost, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, uh, so yeah, you got the tooth, but then like we, we're getting to the point where Kirk uh, actually gets into the house. Yeah, and this is the part what I w- where I would say this is where I get the most freaked out because mm-hmm. there is a brilliant moment where he stands at the door and you feel like you kind of just said there, Tim, you feel safe because he's out in the sunlight, he's on the porch, and then he looks inside and you see this bright red wall covered with skulls and horns. Mm-hmm. And that immediately is an unsettling image. And then when he walks in, you're like, "Oh boy, this is already." Yeah, over. they are like they're all they're all animal skulls at this yes, point. Those so are far. animal skulls. It's still unsettling. It's still a little bit like, Ugh, okay, like you know, self sufficient Texans. You know, they they use every part of the animal. You know, big time hunters. It's like I guess so. It's a little grisly for me in 2022 or the first time I saw this. I'm not a hunter personally. Um. But you're like, this is creepy, but like, it's still within the realm of understanding. Yeah, then you hear some pig noises. Hey, Pam! There's that little squeal in you're, you're like, like, oh, come on, Don't man. go in there. Come on, Kirk. But sure <laughs> enough, there, our, uh, our hero, Kirk, Hello. played by William Vale, he walks in and I... You know what? Credit to Hooper for directing him this way, I guess, more than anything, because it's more about the execution than the performance. Um, I want to talk about this shot, because this is the shot I'm going to come back to several times today. Well, hey, hang on. Before before we do say, I just, like, we've we've skipped over all these shots where, like, you see Leatherface, like, lurking in the background, <laughs> and you get, like, point of view Leatherface, and he's breathing, and you see, like, Leatherface's diary where he says why he wears his Leatherface, we, why aren't we talking about all this stuff? You see the little, little stand where he keeps his mask, and then at the first yeah. noise, he picks it up off the th- off the thing without mm-hmm. showing his face. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're not talking about it because none of it's in this movie, and that's why this movie rules. Yeah, there's no <laughs> setup for what's about to come. There is no lead-up or build-up or any hint at what is waiting behind this door. Yeah, when you see one bit of Leatherface, you see all of Leatherface. You get it all at once. And you have to digest it somehow. It is truly a wonder why that hasn't caught on as like a strategy that was clearly successful because people still remember it. And I'm going to say that this is, the, this is the shot for me. And it they come back to the same locked off camera at a different point in the scene. But it's this exact shot. It's in the hallway. It's low angle. So you're like, it's almost like someone was crouching on the ground with a camera to point up towards the door it's static mm-hmm. so it's like you're not moving which i think adds to it and when yeah i think i think you you feel less free when you have a locked exactly off, right? like you're you're not able to escape you're stuck and when kirk falls <laughs> on the ramp and then you get like this great insert shot of leatherface raising the hammer all of a sudden uh, it's a weird mixture of cuts because i actually think there's a significant continuity error there but it doesn't even factor in it doesn't matter because it's all about how disturbing the imagery then becomes uh you have one quick insert shot that kind of rushes into Leatherface and into the hammer and then it cuts to mm-hmm. back out to the wide of him smashing kirk over the head 
Kirk falls and immediately starts going, his body starts going into spasms. Uh, and I love the clinical explanation of this by Toby Hooper in an interview. He said, just like it would be common knowledge for anybody, he said, as soon as like the hammer would go into his head, bone fragments would spread into the brain, which would actually cause this realistic sense of spasms. Um, and he said it like everyone should kind of know that that's what would happen Come if on, bone went into your Toby, brain. Toby, no one, no one needs to know that. No one knows yeah, that. Yeah, so it's pretty clinical and it's well executed and from that standpoint because I buy every second of Kirk spasming on the ground and twitching and it's really disturbing. So I wanted to speak to the continuity errors you're sort of talking about. And I think you're hundred percent right. And I think it shows uh, Hooper's priorities and why he was right to have these priorities. Um, is that like, it's about the function and the experience and what the audience sees and Correct. not about this plausible direct line you can draw through the shots. And I think the clearest example or the closest sort of analog to that is the way that like Jackie Chan would shoot fight sequences is they don't have a clear continuity when he'd do like three shots for one punch. Every shot would start like a couple frames prior to the ending of the last shot. So you would see more of the punch than there actually exists in its in its actual execution. And it made it clearer for the audience. Right. right. They have to get those extra frames and they can see it happen better. And this is, I think, that same philosophy at play where it's it's about what the audience sees. It's not about like, well, it's the continuity has to be perfect and crystal clear. Right. It's it's the experience of the audience above everything else. Yeah, I haven't seen anyone so deranged to the point where they've like dissected this cutting through TikTok videos or anything like that, but yeah. I'm sure it's only a matter of time. Uh, yeah. I, I, look, you're, you're definitely right. It's more about how the information is being conveyed to the audience in this moment, which is why I said the low angle shot from the hallway is so terrifying. It's locked off and you're stuck there. And then you get this zoom into the killer, you see the murder, and then you're back out to this shot later in the scene and i just think that that's truly horrifying because you're just now you're stuck waiting for the next thing to happen um but so anyways kirk gets dragged into the room behind the red wall uh all of this was just uh add on to the real house set which is pretty cool like the the door and everything and then as i just said there the final note of kirk is the door slamming shut it's like a steel or it's like a like a steel bar yeah door. yeah And it just slides shut and it slant like Leatherface really slams it and it And then you get your first music. Cue. Yes. Wow, really? That's where it is. Because there's wow. no yeah, yeah. there's no You're sting. Right. There's no sting when like Leatherface appears or when the hammer hits or when Kirk is like seizing up and dying. Which are all places where you're like, I can see some music being pretty pretty effective here and they're like, Nope. You're gonna get this like a documentary until like we end this like a function of the sequence or like call this B maybe a is going to the house B is Kirk's entry and death. So once B is complete and we start C that's where you first get the music when he slams. the So door. the music is more so cueing Pam then. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, cool. And, it, and as, as we talked about earlier, this is like this scene, you get your a and B, pillars of horror where the first time when kirk goes in you're like what is going to happen then pam goes in you're like i know what's going to happen and both of them are 
horrifying to experience and to sit and watch. But just to add on to that, you think you know what's going to happen to Pam, and you're still right, but more than that happens to her. Yeah, yeah. She doesn't get, you know, killed at the threshold of the slaughter door or whatever you want to call that. She gets a little bit more information on, uh, at that moment, Leatherface, but then you realize the Sawyers in general. Yeah, because you're right. At this point, you do think this is just Leatherface's house, right? You just think, oh, this crazy masked man who just murdered Kirk. This is like his domicile. And so let's just talk about Pam going into the house because we already mentioned this shot, which is, I think, a counter argument to everything we said about this movie being less cinematic or less artful in a in a conventional way. Because this shot, this is like like Hitchcock would have. This, this is shot, a Hitchcock like shot. Anybody would, right? You know. Um, yeah. So this was, I think, his name's Daniel Pearl, the cinematographer. Yes, Daniel Pearl uh, had this idea for the shot, and he was a rookie cinematographer, didn't have much experience under his belt. Ended up kind of miss shooting chunks of the movie, to be honest, and that worked to the movie's benefit in the end, luckily. But he had this idea for this great shot, and the production, like Union, was trying to, or I guess it would have been the producers. We're trying to say, no, we don't have time for that shot. Don't bother with that shot. It's stupid. Even the actress, uh, Terry McGinn, who played Pam, didn't want the shot because she didn't want a shot focused on her butt uh, as she walked Mm -hmm. up to the house. And Toby Hooper saw the shot kind of lined up, and he's like, no way. We have to get this shot. So they laid all this fresh track, and they get the shot from Pam sitting on the swing set, and the camera goes under the swing set and follows her as she walks up to the house. And the way that uh, Pearl described it to Hooper would be that she's going to get swallowed up by the house as she walks up to it. And I thought that that pretty much epitomizes everything you need to know. And that's the way that it works at execution, too. She does get absolutely dwarfed by the house as she approaches. And then, as Tim noted, you already know what's going to happen at that point. It's like you're just full of dread. I think it's super important that they make this more cinematic. I agree. Because you know what's going to happen. If they shot it the same way as Kirk's entry um, from beginning to end, it would just feel more stale. Even though I think you could make an argument for them being like, let's just rely, rely on the horror of you knowing what's going to happen to her. Or, or thinking you know exactly what's going to happen and shoot it the exact same way. But I think this all ratchets it up. It's almost like you enter into a movie a bit because yeah, you have yeah. music now. You have these dolly shots. You've got all these more conventional um, tools being used. That's a great point. And uh, I think it's a great contrast to Kirk's entry. Yeah, it feels very different. And then she does take a bit of a different route, too. She does enter the same door, but then she goes off to the side, a door before where Leatherface's slaughter door is. And mm-hmm. she enters this curtained-off room full of bones, feathers, and uh, organs. The bone the, couch. The Come bone on. couch is great. The bone couch is so good. So yeah, there's literally a couch frame made out of bone. There is uh, so Robert Burns would apparently like the cast just had stories of him like getting old pillows and just cutting them open and just spreading them around set just randomly, and he'd just do it when he when he had time basically, and that's what the majority of the feathers are in the scene, which works really well. There's like a an overlarge chicken in a very small cage which is iconically disturbing imagery and then as tim noted the bone couch which became pretty iconic too also i i think one of the biggest things for me was always the horn there's like an animal horn going through like Mm -hmm. a mouth a human skull mouth yeah 
I always thought that was pretty I mean, like, freaky. you know, throughout, throughout, as you see more and more of this house, you, it just sort of like, you have like lamps made out of like human skin with the shade and like arms for the, for the body of the lamp and like the, the chairs with the human arms on them and things like that. And it just, it shows you how blurred the line is for the Sawyers and for Lawyer, Leatherface between humans and animals. They're all the same. They're just things to be killed and consumed and used and displayed and things like that. And I think that's the real horror for Pam here. She, You fall into the feathers with her. And it's a lot of like shot, 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 It's shot, like a minute. Cut, cut, cut. Inserts of the things that she's looking at and then her becoming more and more horrified as she sees the extent to which human remains are incorporated into what would otherwise be already very creepy animal-based sort of um, structures and and, uh, and and household items. To be honest, I don't know how much time your brain actually has to register the level of dehumanization happening here, but by the time she leaves this room and is standing face-to-face with Leatherface, once again, coming back to that exact same locked-off shot, which once again fills you with dread because you've already seen this exact angle. It's low, mm-hmm. it's static, it's not going to help you. And and that door swings without preparation. No. Like it's not like here here he comes. You don't hear him squealing even like he was before with Kirk. No, she he she just leaves her door. That door open. He's like, "Oh, I got I got another yeah. one." And that's the way it feels, right? He like opens the door to some like expecting a noise and then he's like, "Oh, you're mm-hmm. right there." And the chase hey. is on and it lasts about <laughs> 1 second. And mm-hmm. she does make it out the front door, but it's literally just wish, wishful thinking as an audience member that she's going to escape, which mm-hmm. also adds to the horror and terror of this moment for the character. The Leatherface just grabs her, completely manhandles her back into the room. He's so big. Gunner's He's so big. huge. And then, yeah, like I love they when he brings her into like the, the butchery or whatever you want to call it it's framed around the hook already. yeah as soon as they enter the room it's such a it's such an it's such a straightforward choice but just to be like this is the end point because i also love that like again with kirk kirk is taken out of commission so quickly you have no time to even like oh man like that's a sledge to the to the to the head just like the cows they talked about in the in the first act but with her it's like oh he's not using the hammer like what is what is the design here? What is the logic, Leatherface? What is going on? And then they, as soon as you enter a new space, you hadn't been in there yet. You know, Kirk's on the table. There's the freezer. There's all the things in progress. Uh, but it's framed around the hook. And you're like, man, I've seen so much of Pam's bare back. Yes. Right? Because of the costume choice, she looks so vulnerable already. And you're just, you're just dreading uh, that hook. I all think. this kind of leads to the same idea of, you kind of know immediately as soon as they enter the room that she's going to get put on the hook. You've seen her bare back. You've seen how exposed she is. You've seen how vulnerable she is. And you just know it's inevitable. And that's what drives mm-hmm. so much fear into the audience at this moment. And the interesting parts about this was, I think it all existed in my imagination how gory this scene was because it is not gory in any way. There's no gore. No. Um in- no it's just not at all and like that's the thing i think especially like if you haven't seen this movie before and you're like oh they're they're doing texas chainsaw massacre i'm not sure if i have the stomach for it i think like in the modern horror climate you're just like texas chainsaw massacre must be like gore porn right like it just must be so much chainsaw action and it's almost nothing. yeah and when it is it's like it's out of view it's blocked off it's left for you to imagine as we've said many times it's often scarier than otherwise um 
but apparently Toby, like he was hoping for a PG thirteen on this movie, so he, so he limited the the gore and, and blood. So for this uh, scene specifically, and, uh, he called the MPAA he, about the meat hook. Mm-hmm. Did you read that story? No, I didn't. It was see specifically that one. about the meat hook. He said, "How can I put a girl on a meat hook and have it be PG?" And they basically like, yeah. I guess you can't show uh, the hook. I, I don't know. And it's and he's like, like, okay, okay, well. Uh, so him and Robert Burns came up with yeah. the, like Robert Burns apparently like he said a lot of stuff so maybe he's making up some of these stories but he said that he gave Hooper the idea to not have the hook go through the front and that was the revelation that made the scene okay, oh, okay. he said that yeah. it will work way better and people just will infer what's happening because you'll you yeah. get two shots that connect the hook to the rest of the room you see the shot of the hook at the beginning and then you see her getting moved towards the hook and that's all you need. Yeah. And it is. And then you get her, her action. And I think her facing forward is so much oh better because she has to watch Kirk on the table yeah. and she's, oh, she's open to us too. You don't have to shoot from behind the hook. I think it may, I think it's good all around. It, yeah, exactly. you you kind of see that it, this is the way that movies should kind of make force your brain to work in the sense that you see there's a wall there, you know, a camera can't fit behind that wall. So you're not going to see that perspective. You're not going to see the perspective from her back of the hookah in her back. Yeah. There's a wall there. How would you get a camera there? Right. That's how your brain is mm-hmm. supposed to work in a moment like this. Yeah. Um, and by only showing her from the front, um, well, apparently they only had about a minute at a time of her hanging there before, like it was getting dicey and they had to get her down. They used a parachute hook, uh, and nylons around her back. It was a pretty mm. unsophisticated, but intelligent way to do it. And, yeah. It works so well. She looks like she's on a hook, and her reaction, like the way she's reaching up and almost like trying yeah. to like pull herself off of the hook, even if it's just a little bit of relief, you really relate to the to that feel. Even though I'm hoping most people listening haven't had a meat hook in the back. Um, I would hope. Yeah, that. like this scene, it fills me with dread think, thinking about what that would feel like and the helplessness of being stuck on a hook without being able to get off and watching your friend or boyfriend at this point be murdered in front of you. It's all horrifying. I mean, it's almost it's almost like, you know, at this point, Hooper's be- saying like, okay, I've, well, you're, we're in it now. We're in act two. I've got you on a hook. You're going to watch the rest of this movie. You're going to watch the people that you've come to know get, get taken apart. Wow, I love that. Yeah. Um, and then the last thing I want to say is just it's even leaving the scene because that's technically the end. As she screams, it cuts to, and you hear the sound of the chainsaw going, you, it cuts to a windmill moving and buzzing in the wind and i i yeah. always thought that was brilliant brilliant editing um mm-hmm. all implication cuts all the sound out and that's the end of the scene um we're kind of going over time already so i just want to say like i think that the combination mm-hmm. of cinematography and production design really contribute to the feel of this but it's the execution of the violence that really stands the test of time because it's not reliant upon gore it's reliant upon what the movie has already set up for its audience's expectations and using incredibly intelligent visual information to convey a sense of torture that you're not actually really seeing. Yeah. Yeah. I think there are, you know, you could teach a very long course on this sequence and what it should say about how horror works. And this movie is so foundational and it's inspired so many filmmakers and I think I see a lot of horror movies that completely disregard what's on display vi- vir- virtually at the surface level yeah. here. 
Yeah. We, we've taken just over an hour to dig into it. And I think we, we talked about a number of things that if you were going to make a horror movie and you try to incorporate those things, they'd be super effective. And you don't, you just don't see it a ton. Um, so it's, it's a singular movie. It's clearly difficult to emulate. And uh, there's a reason why it stood the test of time. I'm so glad that you picked it, Tay. It was great to discuss Yeah, it was it. a lot of fun. Thanks for sticking out for the... Or... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. Um, I mean, for shout-outs, mine's nice and simple. I, I don't know if we talked about this, but I watch my movies with closed captioning on. And, uh, or, or ideally with subtitles, but closed captioning when, uh, when it's the only option. So closed captioning will give you like sound cues and stuff like that, right? And there's one that was really good, and it's when the cook comes back with, uh, with Sally and the hitchhiker <laughs> and goes inside, and he's yelling at Leatherface like, did you let those other kids go? You better not let them go. And then like Leatherface is speaking his gibberish, and there's just a closed caption that like in square brackets says Leatherface explaining, <laughs> uh, which was really good. I really like that, and that's my shout-out. In the commentary, they were arguing whether Leatherface had lines or not, and apparently he didn't have any in the script. But Toby Hooper was like, "No, that's him making the pig sounds," and and yeah. Robert Burns was like, "Was that well, how did you write I'm, that I'm in glad, the script?" Yeah, yeah, I'm glad I'm glad Hooper considered it that way, so that you know, I mean, I guess it wasn't a unionized shoot, but like if you if you have speaking lines, you make more money, and uh, Gunner definitely earned his money, whatever he made. Yeah, he had a tumultuous time being offered the roles of. Uh, Leatherface and all the sequels and never making the money that he wanted to make so he turned them all down always he, this is, I think this is the only one he ever was in hmm oh good for him what's your shout out Tay? my shout out is just simply the performance of Edwin Neal as the hitchhiker um I was always pretty disturbed by the way that they did the makeup and dressed him mm-hmm. I thought that the scarring on his face or like the birthmark on his face is really effective yeah. but also watching the like i did a lot of research this week and watching the interviews of ed neal is really freaky he's genuinely pretty unhinged as a person Mm. he said that he was taking he took a lot of his cues from his schizophrenic cousin who he learned a lot from yeah and incorporated a lot of the schizophrenic activity and behavior into his character in this and i think it works almost too well it's like really unsettling Mm -hmm. but i give him all the credit in the world for setting up what i think is maybe one of the scariest movies of all time and it all starts with him in the van being deranged and uh very unpredictable yeah he does that groundwork right like he sort of like gets your toe in the water before you know leatherface you know pushes you under could have been played a million different Um, ways and that would still rank among the best well, and I think I think his performance, especially, I think to me at least, it engenders at the beginning before he gets violent. It engenders a fair degree of sympathy, right? right? And like, you start with like the kids being like, "Well, it's super hot. Let's let him in here." And then he gets in, and you're like, "This guy's kind of odd, you know? Clearly not well off. Probably has some issues." And it does it does make I do get sympathetic, but then he starts cutting people, and you're like, "You know what? This guy's a freak. I don't like him at all." Um, great performance though that's a that's a great show you know i will say when um, when he takes the bag off of sally's head later in the movie and he like realizes mm-hmm. that it's her that's mm-hmm. terrifying that that would freak me out so much more as like a, i think a woman identifying with sally in this scenario where he's mm-hmm. like it's you kind of thing i know you yeah i remember yeah. you no yeah he's it's... really great 
it, he's he's a great asset to the movie. They, I mean, they all are, but yeah, great shout out. I mean, that's it for our horror month. That's it for October. Uh, we got Halloween coming up in a couple days. I hope everyone's got some good uh, g- good movies lined up for the weekend viewing. Uh, if not, we'll have some recommendations, some final horror recommendations uh, just after this. But just so you know, our next month, because it's November here in Canada, November 11th is Remembrance Day, uh, sort of memorializing uh, um, military efforts and, and wars and, and uh, all that sort of stuff. So we're going to talk about war movies in November, starting with Dunkirk, which will be out in two weeks. And uh, as always, at the beginning of November, keep an eye out. We'll do a vote for another war movie. Uh, for the uh, the listener's choice. But uh, that's going to be the theme for November. And just two episodes, we're back to just every other week. Tay and I just, we love horror so much, we had to fit in a couple extras. Yeah, happy to do um, so this month. And then, uh, yeah, yeah this is I think I'm already pretty excited to get into our second Nolan film ever on the podcast, too. Yeah, absolutely. What? Wait, what we other did Nolan the Prestige in episode do? one, Tim. Oh, yeah, our first episode. <laughs> oh, man. I didn't Man, listen to it either. Busy month. Been doing, been doing this too long. <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll do a re-return to the prestige at some point. We'll apply all our recording experience and and skills to it as we talk about that movie again. Someday. Sounds good. Episode one hundred yeah. or something like Redo that. Redo of episode one. Um, That'd be pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so for our recommendations, I just last night I I watched. It was a live watch along of the hidden by um hang on the hidden is a jack shoulder yeah jack shoulders the hidden so jack shoulder actually directed the second nightmare on elm street which we kind ah, of disparaged okay. last yep. week i don't think but, that was um, his fault clearly a, based on what i read he's clearly he's connected with new line cinema robert shea who we also talked about last week did, did some production on the hidden as well the hidden stars kyle mclaughlin uh it's from 1987 um and it was a live watch along that the Criterion Channel was doing with Kyle McLaughlin. So McLaughlin was tweeting out about the movie as it was airing and everyone just sort of clicked play at the same time. It was a super fun movie. Uh, it's got some other Twin Peaks alumni in it. It's got some cool effects. Uh, I definitely uh, recommend it. It's, it's, it's not abject horror. It's more of an action movie, I'd say, action thriller with some horror elements. Uh, I don't want to give anything else away because it's a cool. Premise. I love it. But I'd, uh, I'd recommend The Hidden. Sounds awesome. I have not seen that, so we'll try and check that out soon. Absolutely. I mean, I watched it on your Criterion channel. Tape, <laughs> okay. So <laughs> you can find it. <laughs> um, what do you recommend? So for our final recommendation of Halloween month in October, I'm going to recommend a, a definitely a more modern slasher film called Hatchet, which is by Adam Green. It's from 2006. I think as far as post 2000 slashers go this is the only one that really matters i'm about to watch a new one called terrifier which i'm pretty excited to share my thoughts on after Mm -hmm. i watch it but hatchet is a louisiana swamp killer uh kind of built a bit in mythology there's a bit of a ghost story behind this guy but he's basically like your jason Voorhees, uh but now it's in a swamp and he has a good time with a bunch of people who crash their uh, ghost tour ride. And that's the first, the, oh, that's the premise of the first one, at least. And it's very gory. The special effects are all in, in camera practical. It looks awesome. I'm not going to say it's a fantastic film, but as far as slashers go, this is about as good as it gets nowadays. And I think it's a pretty effective and fun movie to watch. So if you like gore, if you like your slashers, haven't seen Hatchet, 
I recommend checking out all of them. They're all pretty fun and get more outrageous as Red, they go. I, I have not seen Hatchet, so I'm definitely adding that to the list. See if I can squeeze it in over the Halloween weekend. But uh, with that, that's the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That is one of the most important and best horror movies out there. So I hope you watched it. And if not, I hope you enjoyed just listening to Tay and I uh, uh, rip it apart and uh, use every part of it in, uh, in true leather, leather face Love fashion. It.